to see everyone's face tonight. Uh, every individual, we're glad you're here. Let's turn to the book of Numbers again this evening. Uh, we, over the last few Wednesday nights, we've been talking about some events that are recorded for us in the book of Numbers, and we want to continue to do that in our time together this evening. Just going to take on another episode. Talked about Balaam's donkey. Remember that episode where uh, King Balak called upon Balaam to come and curse Israel, uh, but he ends up blessing Israel, and even in his words, there's a messianic prophecy. So we looked at, at that. We talked about Meribah and the mistake that Moses made at Meribah last week. God told him to provide water for Israel by speaking to the rock. And uh, instead of doing that, and instead of giving God the glory and honor for providing the water, seems that Moses takes that for himself and strikes the rock. And talked about what a tragic mistake that was in the life of Moses. And so we're going to talk about another episode here in the book of Numbers, of all places. Numbers not really a very widely studied book, or not studied very often, seems to me anyway. But it has some really valuable stories and, and accounts that teach great spiritual lessons. So let's go to Numbers chapters 13 and 14 tonight. We're going to talk about the 12 spies. You might remember that story, whether you're young or old, or maybe new to Bible study or studying for a while, you might be familiar with the story of the 12 spies. So God has brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. They were held in bondage there for 400 years. Now that was according to the plan of God. And so He brings them out of Egypt, and they're making their way to the promised land. And before they go into the promised land, God tells Moses to select 12 men, one from each tribe, and these men would go out and go into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and they would spy out the land and then come back with a report uh, to, uh, to Moses and to the people as to what the land was like. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to begin again, Numbers chapter 13. So that's, that's where we see verse 2, "...send out for yourself men..." so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. And so you have a list there beginning in verse 4 of the men selected from each tribe. Notice especially verse 6. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And then a little bit later in verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. And so these two men are going to play a prominent role in the story as it unfolds. And so there's Caleb from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of Ephraim, you see Hosea. But verse 16 tells us that Hosea was called Joshua. Now, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And we know him better as Joshua. So remember those two names. Caleb and Joshua, they're going to come up later. And so here is Israel encamped kind of at the doorstep, at the threshold of the land of Canaan. Select some men, go into the land, spy it out, and then come back and give us a report. And so look at verse 17 where uh, the, the instructions are given. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev. Then go up into the hill country. So start down at the south and then work your way up and look over the land, see what it's like and so forth. So he gives us some details in verse 18. See what the land is like. 
whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the time of first ripe grapes. And so, go into the land. Now, is the land productive or is it barren? What are the people like? Do they live in kind of open cities? Are they, are they fortified? Is there a wall around the cities? And so, just spy out the land and come back and give us a report so that when we go into the land, we'll, we'll know what to expect. and We'll be ready. We'll be prepared uh, for the, the task in front of us. And, and so they do. They start in the south, down in verse 21. They, they start in Zen, as far as Rehob, and some of these places are named. There's the Negev, and, and they work their way from the south up, up to the north. And verse 22 tells us that the descendants of Anak were there. And, and who, who, are those, who, who are those people? Well, these are strong, large, very physically imposing people, and they would be uh, you know, quite, quite a resistance to uh, the people of Israel as they went into the land to try to conquer it. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 2, you find that uh, these people, again, very strong. They are a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? And so they're so big, so powerful, so strong, well, nobody, nobody can stand against them. And so they're, you know, that's, they're living in the land. So they, they come back with this report. They're in the, in the land for 40 days. And so a good long time to go in and spy out the land. Verse 24 tells us, or verse 23 says, They came to the valley of Eshcol, which is near Hebron, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. Now, that's why I've got the picture of these grapes up here. <laughs> and so they go in, they go to this fertile valley. The grapes are growing there, and the, the produce is so great that they take some of it, a single cluster of grapes, they put it on a pole along with some of the other produce, some of the other fruit, and they, that, that's how they carry it back to the Israelites. Well, as I said a moment ago, they're in the land for 40 days. They're there for 40 days just on a reconnaissance mission, just taking a look at the land and, and the people. And they, they come back to Israel, they come back to Moses with their report. And so look at, again, chapter 13. We're going to begin reading in, in verse 25. Well, let's just skip down to verse 27. And so they told him, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and, and this is its fruit, no doubt pointing to the cluster of grapes and the other fruit that they're carrying on the pole. And then they say, Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. And so the land is populated. It's populated with different, different ethnicities. Uh, so they're strong people. The cities are strong cities. They're fortified. Then skip down to verse 31. 
The men who had gone up said, we are not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are of great size. There are also the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim, these big, strong, giant people. And we, we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. We're nothing. We, we can't go up against these people. We're like little grasshoppers compared to them. There's no way that we can go in there, we can fight against them, and we can overcome them. Just, we just can't do it. Now, we skipped over a couple of verses there. Look at verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people. Remember what I said in the beginning? Remember that name, Caleb? All right, here's Caleb. Quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. So here are ten spies who are saying, No, no way. We, they're too strong. They're too settled there. They're fortified their city. We just can't do it. Here's one voice at this point in the story saying, No, we need to go up. We can do it. We can do it. Well, there's sort of another phase to their report down in chapter 14. So let's go down to chapter 14 and let's look at this second phase, this round two. Verse 1, All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Moses, we'd been better off. We'd stayed in Egypt and we died there. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. So there's, why, this, this, is, this is a terrible idea, <laughs> going into the land of Canaan. Well, you know, why, Moses, why did you bring us up? Let's go back down into Egypt. Well, Joshua, if you look at verse 6, remember I said, remember Joshua and Caleb? And I hear Joshua, and joined this time by Caleb, and they both speak up. Verse 7, they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land." They will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, we can do it. Now, God has promised to give us this land, and He will. He's removed their protection. And so, yes, they're strong, their cities are fortified, but if the Lord has removed His protection from them, well, then they're exposed, and they're weak, and they're vulnerable. We, we can go up. Just trust in the Lord. He will provide the victory. I've, I did all that and hadn't been keeping up with it. But the people listened to the ten. You've got ten spies saying, no, we can't do it. You've got two spies saying, yes, we can. And the people reject the advice of the two. Look at verse 10 of chapter 14. All the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. So, and so the ten spies joined with the other people, stoned these two men, Joshua and Caleb, who are giving this contrary report. 
that stoned them to death with stones. Well, in what follows, we see the Lord's response to all of this. And it's not a positive response as you might expect. In fact, He tells Moses, I'm, I'm going to, to strike these people with a pestilence and dispossess them. That's, that's verse 12. I'm going to dispossess them, and I will make you into a great nation, a nation greater and mightier than they. And so they don't believe in me. They don't have confidence in me. I'm going to just dispossess them. I'm going to cast them off, and I'll make of you a nation, even a better nation than, than they've been. And Moses then responds to that. Moses appeals to the Lord and tries to persuade him not to do that. Verse 13, the Egyptians will hear of it, that you've dispossessed them, that you've smitten them, and then they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. And then verse 15, they will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which He promised them by oath, therefore He slaughtered them in the wilderness. So Moses said, now, Lord, here's what's going to happen if you do that. The Egyptians going to talk to these people and tell them it's because He couldn't do it. The Lord wasn't strong enough. The Lord wasn't powerful enough to bring His people into the land. That's why they died in the wilderness, because the Lord, their God, was unable to bring them into the land that He had promised to give them. And that appeal is persuasive. So in verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. I've pardoned them. But, look at verse 22. All the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. And so, the punishment was, none of these people who had disbelieved in God, who had turned away from God, who said, we can't take the land. None of them are going to go into the land. None of them, 20 years old and up, none of them going to go into the land. With the exception, of course, of Joshua and Caleb. And so they're, they're sentenced, we might say, to wandering in the wilderness, going from place to place. God's leading them, of course, but going from place to place in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies. Why 40 years? A year for every day the spies were in the land. Remember, the spies were in the land for 40 days. And so God says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, a year for every day the spies were in the land, until this generation of unbelieving Israelites dies in the wilderness. Verse 36 tells us that the ten spies... Uh, were stricken with a plague, verses 36 and 37, stricken with a plague and died before the Lord. And so that's the punishment. That's, that's the consequence of their turning away from God, not believing that He could bring them into the land or they would bring them into the land. That generation dies. The next generation will go into the land. And those ten spies, they were, their lives were taken. Verse 30, however, says, Surely... You shall not come into the land in which I swore to, 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 uh, swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. And so Caleb and Joshua do go into the land. So the people listen to this ten spies, and God sentences the people to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, to that generation dies. 
And then there's an epilogue to the story. Now, sometimes maybe we don't tell the epilogue, the, the, the end of the story. Look down at verse 39. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And in the morning, however, they rose up early and went to, up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we, we've indeed sinned, but we'll go up to the place which the Lord has promised. And Moses said, Why are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, or you'll be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. The Amalekites, the Canaanites, will be there in front of you. You'll fall by the sword. And so, and so don't go up. <laughs> Verse 44, they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord, nor Moses left the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. So here's a, a group of Israelites, now that they've heard what the punishment is going to be, oh, well, we've sinned, let's go up, let's take the land. They try to do that, and they fail. So... There we go. An ill-advised attempt to attack fails. Well, let's, let's draw out just a few observations, a few lessons from the story. Not an unfamiliar story to a lot of us, uh, but uh, one that's informative. Most of the people simply did not believe God's problem. What was the problem here? <laughs> well, well, why didn't they succeed? What, what was the problem? They just didn't believe in God's promise. They have any confidence in God's promise, that, that He would be able to fulfill His promise. And Joshua and Caleb did, and that might be a lesson in itself. It's always the minority. You know, it's the minority that really has confidence and trust in the Lord's promise and in His ability to save. And so let's talk about that just a little bit. Now, God had promised to give Israel the land from a long time ago, a long time before this, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, God tells Abraham to leave his, his home, his family, and Ur of the Chaldees. He, he travels all the way to the land of Canaan. And when he gets there, God says, This is the land that I'm promising to give you. Verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so from that point... God is promising to Abraham and his descendants, Israel, He's going to give them that land. Now, He repeats that promise many, many times as the story of Genesis unfolds, and then even later in the later books, that promise is repeated many times. In Genesis chapter 28, for example, Jacob is fleeing, his brother is mad at him, and he's fleeing for his life, and he stops in a place called Bethel, and God tells him, you know, if, if you leave, I will bring you back to this land. This is the land that I'm going to give you. Verse 15, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until, what I, uh, until I've done what I've promised you. And so I bring you back to this. This is the land that I promised to give Abraham and his descendants. And, and it's repeated several times throughout the story. The Lord had also promised to defeat their enemies for them. That's, that's an important observation. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, 
The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This is at the Red Sea. The Lord is going to fight for you. And that promise is repeated several times in the text. And so I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to fight for you, and I'm going to defeat your enemies for you. Don't, don't you worry about that. You just trust and obey. We're going to sing that song in a few minutes. Trust me and obey me, and I'll, I'll do the work for you, in, in a sense. He had done that already. By the time they get to this land of Canaan, 12 spies episode, God had already defeated their enemies for them on previous occasions. At the Red Sea. You know, Israel passes through on dry ground, but the Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea. The Lord is fighting for them, and He, he brings them into safety. He delivers them. He rescues them. And then in the battle with Amalek, the Amalekites. Remember that occasion Moses holds his hands up, and as long as he's holding his hands up, they win the victory. God is fighting for them. He's giving them the victory. They've already seen that. If they've been paying attention, they, they would know that. In Exodus chapter 15, we even find that they have memorialized God's victory over Egypt at the Red Sea in song. And so... Exodus 15, Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. So they've already seen this with their own eyes. And yet, when it comes time to go into the land and fight for the land, they say, we can't do it. They just don't believe in God's Word. They just don't believe in God's promise. And so they fail. We've got to believe in God's promise. <laughs> if we want to succeed, spiritually speaking, we've got, to, we've got to believe and have confidence in God's promise. Now let's think about some of the promises that God has made us. Maybe we'll start with something He hasn't promised us. God has not promised that our lives are going to be trouble-free. God, God just never has promised that for His children. That has never been God, you, you be a child of mine, you're not going to have any trouble, you're not going to have any injury, no sickness, no illness, no financial setback. Your life is just going to be problem-free. God has never promised that. Sometimes people think He should, but, but He's never promised that. What He has promised is that I will be with you. And so when you go through the difficulties in life, I want you to know you're not going through them alone. I'll be with you, and I will provide for you whatever you need to endure the, pro the, the problem. That's Paul's thorn in the flesh, isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I've got a thorn in the flesh. I besought the Lord three times that He might take it away. He said, no, my grace is sufficient. You're going to go through this, whatever that thorn was, you're going to experience it and go through it. I'm not going to take it away from you. I'll give you the wherewithal, however, to endure it. Here's, listen to these, just a few verses. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Verse 8. The Lord is the one who, who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. Don't get discouraged. Don't be afraid. 
That's one of the great promises of God, isn't it? I'm going to be with you. And so, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And so David is lifted up in spirit because of the presence of the Lord. And that, that promise is made over and over and over again in Scripture, many, many times. Don't be afraid, I'm going to be with you. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells, well, he's making a point about being anxious and worrying about this life, about having enough food to eat and having clothes to wear. And, and he just says to us, to his disciples, don't, don't worry about these things. God, God knows what you need, and He's going to provide these things for you. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They, they don't sow, they don't reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? At the end of that, it just says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All of these things are going to be added to you. Now, that's God's promise. Just have to trust in God's promise. Don't, don't ever fail to believe or have confidence in God's promise. God promises to care for us. God promises to hear our prayers. He promises to do that. Look at the book of Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He invites us to pray. Don't be anxious in everything. Let your requests be made known to God. God has promised to hear our prayers. God promises we're not going to be tempted beyond what we're able to bear. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 contains that promise in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful... Not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. Now, God, that's a promise that God has made. Now, God's going to provide a way of escape. Now, it doesn't say, it'll be, it'll be a cinch for you to take that way of escape. It might take some discipline, some determination, some will to resist and take that way, but, but it's there. Now, that's a promise of God. Don't ever think, I, I just can't do it. No, we, we can do it. We can do it just like Israel could do it uh, in the case of the 12 spies. God promises to give us wisdom. James chapter 1. If any one of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Nothing doubting who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you lack wisdom? Would you like some more wisdom? <laughs> Yes, I would. All right, ask of God. Ask God. He'll give it to you. Now, it may be that He has you pass through some experiences from which you learn. Maybe you make some mistakes and you learn the hard way, but you're going to acquire and accumulate wisdom. God is going to, to give it to you. Don't, don't question that. Don't, don't, don't doubt that. And see, that, that wisdom is going to help us make our way through the temptation, isn't it? God promises to forgive our sin. And so if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. And God promises then to bring us into heaven. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. 
In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved His appearing. And so I'm, I'm ready to go. I've, I've, I've run the race. I've finished the course. I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I, I'm ready to go. The Lord is going to give me that crown when I, when I pass over into heaven. But it's not just for me. It's for all who have loved His appearing. Now those are some of the promises of God. I think I got six or eight of them there. Promises of God. Let's, let's not make this mistake. Where we fail to believe in God's promise. If we'll just stay the course, just be faithful, just keep fighting the good fight, God will deliver on His promise. Another observation. Now, God's promises are often fulfilled through human action. And so Israel was, a, was meant to go into the land and fight for it. And eventually they do. You know, that, that generation dies, the next generation under the leadership of Joshua, they go in and they, and they fight for the land. And so that's how God is going to give them the land. They're going to go with God's empowerment. They're going to go into the land and fight for it, and God will give it to them. You know, there's a difference between working to achieve something because we think achieving it depends entirely on me and working to achieve something because God has promised He'll enable us to succeed. Those are two different things. So if you were to ask Israel under the leadership of Joshua, why y'all in here fighting, you know, here in, in Canaan? Uh, if they were to say, you know what, we want the land, and it's entirely up to us, our ability, our willingness to fight, our willingness, our strength, our military uh, acumen and skill, it's up, up to us. That's totally different from why are y'all in here fighting? Because of God's promise. God has promised this land to be ours. And God is going to give us the power. And God is going to give us the ability. And God is going to give us the strategy. And if we'll carry out God's plan in God's way, God is going to give us the victory. Now those are two different things, aren't they? Those two different reasons to fight. Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb all understood that God would enable Israel to succeed if they fought for the land according to His will, according to His plan. They knew the victory would be theirs. Caleb said as much. If we'll go in, God has removed their protection. We can take it. Jericho provides a contrasting example. Under the leadership of Joshua, they go into Jericho. They follow the instructions of God. They march around the city according to God's instruction, and the walls fall down flat, and they take the city. Do God, you have to do it, but do God's plan in God's way, and God empowers you to succeed. Lots of other examples of that. You know, the first two approaches, first of the two approaches we mentioned, will not save us. You know, if, if, if we do things because, you see, it's by my strength and by my will and by my might and by my work, I'm going to achieve salvation for myself. That, that's, that's not going to work, is it? Titus chapter 2, or chapter 3, rather, um, considers that. He says uh, in verse uh, 5 that God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, so not on the basis of our deeds, which we've done in righteousness. But on the other hand, if we say, 
we're doing these things because God has instructed us to do them. And we believe that God is going to give us the victory, that God is going to bless us, that God is going to save us as we do these things, as we do, as we do them, as we do His will in, in His way. Now, those are two different things. Now, that will save. The first one won't. If it's all up to us, if it's all up to me, if I'm doing it because I'm hoping by myself on my own that I'm going to achieve this, that, that's not going to work. But if I do these things because God has instructed me to do them, and I do them in faith, believing that God will provide the blessing, now that's, that's different. And so Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23 indicates that we will be saved if we continue in the faith. Galatians 5 verse 6, we'll be saved if we have a faith that works through love. And James chapter 2 tells us if we have a working faith, well then God will provide the blessing. And so, God's promises are often fulfilled through human action. So just remember that. The, the, the human action is not, you know, by our own will, our own device, our own strategy. It's, it's we're, we're doing and performing what God would have us to do in faith, and He will give the blessing. The third observation is this. Acting without God's approval and doing things our way is not going to succeed. Remember at the end of the story, we talked about those who, this ill-advised attack and, and just how it failed. They said, well, we've sinned. We're going to go up. And Moses said, don't go up. <laughs> don't go up. God's not going to be with you. And you know, why are you transgressing God's command? Uh, we, we've sinned. We're going to go up. And they go up and it's just disaster. And so, what, what, what's the problem there? Well, they made a decision without consulting God. They disregarded God's spokesman, Moses. They disregarded what God had said. They do what they think should be done. And so they take matters into their own hands. We're going to do what we think should be done, and it fails. Now, did you know that there's even a spiritual element, an element of spiritual interest and sensitivity there? They confessed that they had sinned. And so there, there's this element of spiritual awareness. And, and yet, they're taking matters into their own hands, doing what they think they ought to do, and, it, and it, it, it fails. The lesson is, we can't take matters into our own hands. We must do what God asks us to do in the way that He asks us to do it. How are we going to, how are we going to know that? Well, here, here you go, right here. We do what God asks us to do in His Word, in the way that He asks us to do it, and we don't, we don't presume to say, you know, I think this would be a good idea. I think that would be a good idea. Without consulting the Word of God and seeing His direction, we, we, we don't do that, because we know that's doomed to failure. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the early disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We've talked about that before, continuing in the apostles' doctrine. You know, just like Moses was God's spokesman in the episode with the twelve spies, so the apostles are God's spokesman today. And just as they should have listened to the word of God's spokesman then, we need to listen to the word of God's spokesman today, the apostles. 
The apostles, what they write for us in the New Testament, it's going to guide us. It's going to lead us. It's going to give us God's direction. And so we want to follow that. We want to follow His direction. We follow their straightforward teaching. If they say, do this, we do it. We follow their example. We see the apostles doing this with approval. Okay, we, 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 we do that. We follow that example. We draw out from those things the uh, unavoidable conclusions, the implications. And so in that way, we're following their teaching. And so we cannot determine for ourselves what we think would be good or what do you think would accomplish the desired result? That's what Israel did. Just acted on their own, decided for themselves what they thought would be good and how to go about achieving that, and it, it failed. If a thing doesn't have biblical approval, it doesn't please God. You know, not everything in religion is right. I mean, it kind of comes as a shock maybe to some people. Not everything done in the name of religion is right or all right. Not everything done by people who have religious sensitivities is all right. Those people had some spiritual sensitivity. We've sinned. But, but not everything done by people with religious inclination and religious sensitivity is either right or all right. We, we have a God in spiritual matters, the Scriptures. Paul says it will equip us to every good work. And so we want to do our best to follow this guide in what we teach and what we practice. Let's do what we find God's spokesman directing us to do. And we'll be on solid ground then. And so here's the episode of the 12 spies. There, there's strong lessons to be learned from it. Don't ever fail to depend on and to believe in God's promise He's made many promises to them. He will keep every one of them. They're often fulfilled through human action. And so we don't expect God to fulfill His promise just miraculously at, at every turn. You, we, you know, we don't have to do anything to accomplish the... No, you know, God often makes good on His promises through human action. But acting without God's approval and doing things our own way, surely to fail. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you at this time. We recognize you as our creator. We recognize you as our sustainer. And we recognize you as our judge. We will all stand before you one day and give an account of ourselves. Father, we're thankful that you've revealed to us your word, your will in your word, that we have access to it, that we can understand it, and that we can pattern our lives by it. Help us, Father, to learn from these Old Testament uh, stories, these Old Testament accounts. They tell us about you. They tell us about what, what you are like, how you respond when we obey, when we disobey. And so help us, Father, to learn from these things. Father, help us always to believe your word, to have confidence in what you promise. Help us to understand that many times you provide for us and fulfill your promises as we go out and we perform the tasks that are set before us, that we do, that we do your will. And in that way, you fulfill your promises that you've made to us. And help us, Father, always to consult your word, to follow it wherever it leads, that we may not turn aside from it, either to the right hand or to the left, that we 
trust in your word to guide us into every good work. Father, we pray that you'll go with us through this week, that we will be drawn closer and closer to you. Help us to consider your word. Help us to spend time with you in prayer and draw closer to you as we go through our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.